Welcome to part two of my interview with Dr. Rashid Batar. You are gonna find this man's passion, intelligence, and drive and purpose in life to be contagious. He's amazing, he is daring, he cares about you, he cares about this subject. So let's dive in to part two of his interview. So how, how did you get into this whole, like you're working in this realm and getting to your, your thoughts around vaccines? Well, for years, I had understood the aspect of heavy metals and their role in pathology. And this goes back to when I started my practice in 1996, but I really wasn't that convinced about the vaccines, but there was enough evidence for me to start looking at it. And, you know, the creator speaks to us in different ways, and sometimes we don't listen. And essentially, I had started treating some children with autism completely by default, with no knowledge or awareness of even what autism was. Again, I was a general surgeon, right? I mean, when in doubt, cut it out, he would steal. That's our mentality. You know, we're simple-minded people. Um, we, we, we work extremely hard. And pretty much when it comes to everything outside of surgery, unless it, we have a lot of interest in it, we really don't pay attention to it. And I was no different. I don't even remember what autism was. To me, autism was something like trisomy 21. I thought it was a genetic disorder like Down syndrome or something else. I, I had no idea. I mean, Kleinfelter syndrome and autism and Down syndrome, they all kind of merged into one for me. And, you know, it was stuff that I'd never know, never need to know. Why even, you know, if I need it, I'll look it up on the Internet type of thing, right? And so I had this lady that came to me who we had been treating for heavy metal issues and some gut issues, and she got better. And she asked me, could you help me with my daughter who has autism? And again, I didn't remember what autism was. And I'm thinking, well, some kind of genetic disorder, and I'm not going to be able to really help her. And she says, but, you know, could you just try? And I said, sure. So she comes in. She was four years old or five years old. And I wrote about this in my Nine Steps to Keep the Doctor Away book. But basically, I just applied the same principles I did to the mom. I treated her gut, addressed her heavy metal issues. Well, lo and behold, the last thing that the mom remembers this child doing normally when she was about a year and a half old was playing patty cake. And then everything had disappeared. Now she's almost five years old. We start her treatment. And within about two months, she starts playing patty cake again. She started coming back to the same spot where she had stopped her development, and it reinitiated at that point. Mom's ecstatic, starts telling everybody. To me, again, you know, I'm a black and white type of guy. I don't see that much difference. She's still nonverbal. She's still non-functional. Uh, okay, so she's playing patty cake again, but, you know, that doesn't really mean anything to me. And she just continued to slowly progress. And then word spread and had more people coming in. And within about a year, by 1998, year, year and a half, by 1998, early 1998, I had patients coming from everywhere with autism. Now, when I say everywhere, I mean, you know, within a couple of states. The Knight Rider picked up the story and it was published in Johannesburg, South Africa, and it became viral from there. And I really wasn't focused on that, but it became very cumbersome. It became very difficult to see the trauma in parents' eyes, see the expectation, the hope that they had when they would come to the clinic. It was tough on the nurses trying to control the children. The children would, these autistic kids would rip up the exam rooms, pull out wallpaper, you know, dump the trash cans, just destroy the rooms. And the worst part of it for me was just looking at it. I wasn't seeing definitive 
resolution. I still saw the same issues. And the parents were happy because there was a little bit more functionality, but to me, there really wasn't that much. And so I decided in early 1998 that I would no longer see autistic kids. I was the first doctor to start doing IV secretin. Um, I was, there was a number of things that we'd done in autism, and we basically made a decision to stop seeing autistic kids. And in January of 1999, about 10 months after I'd made the decision to stop seeing autistic kids, my son, Abi, was born. Yes. And, um, you know, in retrospect, I know what a blessing he was, what a gift he was. All children are gifts, but he was also a message. He was actually a messenger. And the message that he brought to me was the creator's message that, ah, so you think you're in control. <laughs> no, you're not. You were sent to do a job, and you will do it. Basically, he, he upped the ante. Um, I, my daughter had been born in 1993, and she had been vaccinated, but we had been trying to have a second child and had had multiple miscarriages and then had decided that if we were to have another child, we would not vaccinate that child. My son, Abi, he was extremely advanced for, you know, typical babies will hold their heads up at about 30 days. He was holding his head up at four days. He... Uh, progressed very rapidly. He, his first word was abu, which in Arabic means father. He had a dozen to 15 word vocabulary. He was a year and a few months old and he was already, it was very evident how fast he was developing. And unbeknownst to me, his mom went back and got vaccinations for him. And, you know, it's, she was trying to do the best thing for her son, even though we had made that decision, you know, you can't be a preacher in your own house. So she saw him as her child and she had to protect him. And she had all these doctors that we knew from, you know, that, that had either come into the hospital when my son was born and had told her that she should get vaccinations for him, uh, had tried to convince us, or people that we knew because she worked in the office with me. So all these doctors that said that it was irresponsible not to do vaccinations, et cetera, et cetera. And now she's got her husband she doesn't see me as a doctor, right? You can't be a preacher in your own house. So it was her husband against all these doctors. So she went back without telling me, and that's when he was vaccine injured. And by his third birth, we, we separated at that point. There's a lot of things that happened. And uh, at the age of, on his third birthday, actually, after the fourth test, I believe it was the fourth test, I established that he did have mercury. The first three tests did not show it. And, you Can know, I I'm, ask I'm, you what kind of symptoms he was showing? Like, in other words, so oh, the typical is, autistic symptoms of, uh, of uh, stimming, hand flapping, lost all his ability, all his words disappeared. He would just say day, day, day. He would talk as if he was having a conversation with the proper and appropriate inflections in his voice, but it was all day, 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 day. Uh, the way he was playing with cars, lining things up, obsessive compulsive type behaviors, very, very sensitive to light and sound. And uh, the, just the typical things, a lot of uh, crying and temper tantrums. But at the same time, when he was happy, he was very happy. Did his pediatrician agree that, uh, that he was showing signs of autism or, 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 I'm sorry, that he was vaccine damaged or that there was a relationship between the vaccines he was having and his uh, symptoms? No, autism is typically not diagnosed mm. till the age of two and a half to three. Mm. It's a diagnosis of exclusion. Usually pediatricians give the same song and dance that it's, 
it's part and parcel of the development process. Some kids develop fast, some kids develop slow. And they, of course, ignore the parents when they say, oh, yeah, but my child was already speaking. My child was already doing X, and now they're not doing X anymore. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, oh, well, you know, there's vacillation of developments, et cetera, et cetera. And I took him to a pediatric uh, neurologist who concurred that there was something that was going on. But that was not till after he was three years old and we'd started his treatment. And um, I did not allow him to have an, a diagnosis of autism. I did not want that label on him. He was diagnosed as developmentally delayed. Mm -hmm. And then we started his treatment on his third birth. As I said, I found out that had confirmation of his test results. You know, there was a lot of trial and tribulation during that period where there was a lot of um, arguing with the creator, begging the creator, threatening the creator, cursing the creator, mm. bartering with the creator, um, give me back my son and I'll do anything you want was my final offer. Um, you know, I have to tell you, this is an important part of the understanding of, if you look at, you know, follow the line that a, um, a parent is, you know, saying that they're compelled to inject their children with these substances, which can have, you know, these effects that there's known adverse effects. And, uh, and then what is the experience of that parent who's told that they're crazy, it wasn't due to the vaccines, that, uh, you know, you can't, if you want to sue, you got to, you know, you have to, and sometimes suing, not saying I want all these damages, I just need to be able to get help for my kid and I need the funds to be able to do that. And that, uh, you know, the ability to go to vaccine court is, you know, arduous at best. So, uh, and, and I think for you in caring for these autistic kids, um, understanding the experience of the parent, like you said, you know, why would God allow this to happen? Why, you know, what, what can I do? You know, what kind of bargain can I make? I, I think that psychology or understand that psychology has to have a bearing on the type of care that you provide. Well, it probably did. Uh, and again, being in the trenches and experiencing it, I, um, you know, people come up to me, Patrick, and say things to me all the time, like, just give me all sorts of accolades and you know, I've done this for them, I've done that for them, I've been really, really, really blessed that I've had probably, if I've had one, I've had over a thousand people tell me that I've saved their lives. That makes me grateful that I had a role in that, but what makes me uncomfortable is when they give me these accolades. Because it's like saying you breathe so well, I don't know how else to be. And I don't feel that I should receive those accolades for just what anybody would do, what, what I feel that anybody would do as a parent, as, a, as an adult, as a responsible human being. And it was really difficult. Um, you know, it's, it's weird because, you know, you know, Abby's 21 now, but there's, it's like a post-traumatic stress disorder. When I start talking about it, that emotion comes back. Mm -hmm. And um, I just remember really feeling that there was no creator. So when people uh, say to me, you do this so well or whatever, honestly, all I'm doing is I'm just keeping my end of the bargain. I told the creator, give me back my son, and I'll never stop your work. He gave me back my son. I'm just uh, following through with that obligation. And, you know, you've seen what Abby's like. You know what an extraordinary human being he is. 
He touches the lives of everybody that he comes across. And all these children, every one of these children is cognitively superior. This is the thing that is so angering to me. And I can't prove this right now, but I can prove it based on observation. The purest form of science, as you know, Patrick, is observation. I believe that the same polymorphism that defines the inability to excrete mercury. So let's talk about the definition of autism first before I go into this polymorphism. There is no such thing as autism, all right? Autism is nothing more than mercury toxicity on board a physiology that has an inability to excrete. That's it. It is not genetic. Yes, there are other metals and other things involved, but the 99 percentile issue is mercury. Mercury, it causes denudation of the neurofibrils like nothing else does. It's not just mercury in the vaccines. It's mercury in, in the mother, the mother's own load. The Centers for Disease Control in 2002 released the NHANES data that showed that one out of six women of childbearing age was mercury toxic in the United States. The same year, the American Academy of Pediatrics came out and showed that one out of six children that was being born in the United States had some type of a neurological deficit. They didn't say it autism. They said neurological deficit, which included ADD, ADHD, Asperger's, autism spectrum delay, pervasive developmental delay, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what's unusual is that you've got one out of six mothers, mercury toxic, one out of six children being born with some type of a neurological implication. Not one out of five, not one out of seven, one out of six, same ratio. So now let's talk about what the definition of autism is. Autism is nothing more than mercury toxicity on board a physiology with the predisposition of not being able to excrete like normal, to get rid of the normal things in our system. Now, when you start to look at these children, when the polymorphisms that define the inability to excrete, what am I talking about? ApoE allele, glutathione S-transferase, methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase enzyme deficiency, COMT lesions, blah, blah, blah. There's all sorts of different things, and there's probably thousands that we haven't even elucidated yet. But the point is, there are certain predispositions that you can see on these SNPs when you look at the genetic components of these children. Now, I'm not saying it's a genetic disorder. Understand that. It's a genetic predisposition, just like if you take a tall woman and you take a tall man who both had tall parents, the genetic predisposition for that child will be to be tall. Okay? It doesn't mean that they're going to have to be tall, but there's a genetic predisposition. If you have parents that were both athletes or they were both swimmers, they're going to have a genetic predisposition to be athletes or good swimmers or whatever the case may be. So this is a genetic predisposition. It is not genetic, but there is a polymorphism that occurs. And I believe that the same allele that defines this, this predisposition for the inability to excrete is the same allele that defines raw cognitive ability. These children are cognitively superior to their peer group, all right? Now, anybody can say anything they want, but I have treated over 4,000 children over the last quarter of a century in my own clinic, and the vast majority of those children are neurotypic today if we got them before the age of seven. And the ones that are older than that have varying levels of recovery. But the polymorphism aspect, I am convinced that these children are cognitively superior. So I had a child from Norway. The father was an engineer, and the father would fly him in every two weeks, because our protocol at that time was two weeks, every two weeks. We had just gone to our IV protocol. So my son is the youngest formal witness before the US Congress. 
He testified at the age of five years and five months old, and everything went crazy after that. And we had patients coming in from all over the world. This particular, it was about a year after that in 2005, I guess it was, a 2004-2005 timeframe that the father, this father from Norwich are bringing his son to us, and we just implemented our IV version of the treatment protocol. This child was severely autistic. He was self-abusive. He would excoriate his face. He would slam his head in the walls. He would defecate wherever he was. He was severely, severely damaged. And uh, it was a very difficult type of case. Fast forward to seven months, the child's no longer hitting his head on the wall. He's no longer slamming his head, or he doesn't need to wear the American-style football helmet anymore. He's no longer defecating in the hallways. He's no longer opening up drawers and urinating in them. And he's still not communicating. He's not talking. He's no longer flying out into the traffic or that type of stuff. So he's much more controllable. Parents, I only met the father. He's very, very happy. But he's still autistic. He's about six or seven years old at this point. They come in for a regular visit seven months into their treatment. And I normally, when I walked in, our rooms were set up so there's a sink and I can have a little table to write and then the patients are sitting here to my right side. I walk in, this is before the popularity of iPads. This is when parents would still carry around the portable DVD players for the kids. So I walk in and the father is sitting next to the son. The son is in a chair with a chair in front of him watching a Disney movie on a portable DVD player. Father's sitting next to him with a chair in front of him with his laptop and he's working on something. I walk in, greetings, sit down, we start talking. Father says, Dr. Buttar, do you mind if I just run to the restroom? I said, sure. His son, and out of the corner of my eye, I sort of noticed him move. But I keep on writing on the chart. He gets up and he sits in his father's chair in front of his computer and starts doing something on his computer. About 30 seconds, 45 seconds, maybe a minute later, father walks back in. Sees the son on his computer and freaks out. Very upset, raising his voice, picks his son up, sets him back in front of his DVD player, explaining to him in a different language that this is what he's got to do, this is his dad's thing. Turns around, realizes I'm in the room, comes back to awareness that I'm in the room and apologizes to me for his outburst. He sits down behind his computer. I proceed to ask him some questions. Father doesn't answer me. I ask him again, and now I'm looking over my shoulder, and I see the father's eyes fixated on the computer screen, oblivious to what I'm saying. I ask him again, and he turns to me and tries to talk and chokes up on his words, and then starts to weep. And I'm thinking, oh my God, this kid must have seriously destroyed all his work. And the father turns the laptop around to me, and through his sobbing, shows me, and there's all these calculations and everything. And I mean, I'm a mathematician. I do a lot of stuff. I did, you know, took the senior level physics courses my senior year before entering into medical school. So I understand certain things, but this is like beyond me. I didn't understand all the stuff. There were more symbols than there were numbers, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And the father proceeds to explain to me that he has been stuck on this mechanical engineering or electrical engineering, I don't even remember what it was, problem and has been working on it for three months. And his son fixed it in the minute or two minutes or three minutes that he was in the bathroom. My goodness. This is a nonverbal speaking child. And there are stories like that over and over again, I can tell you.
uh, you know, I'll just give you another example. The little kid, first name was Rishi Bond from the UK. And another extreme case of uh, autism. And uh, I will not treat a child with hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And this, this is a pet peeve of mine, that doctors will take information that they've heard about at a conference and they throw it. They throw stuff up against a barn wall and see what sticks. It's the most idiotic way of practicing medicine. You, you have to first observe, then you form a postulate, and then based upon the hypothesis that you formulated, you then test it. And if you have a recurring observation of the same thing happening, consistency, then you can call it science, right? And getting into this double-blind placebo-controlled crossover multi-center trials being science, that's not science. You know, science is built upon facts, just like a house is built upon bricks. But a pile of facts is no more science than a pile of bricks is a house. And a double-blind placebo-controlled crossover multi-center trial is very good at accumulating facts, but it doesn't build science from it. This is the problem with modern medicine. We almost have the mentality that, you know, every time I see fire engines, I see fires. Therefore, I conclude that fire engines cause fires. And you know that that's a totally absurd and ridiculous assertion, and yet that's exactly how we think in medicine. So when we're looking at these children with autism, somebody talks about hyperbarics, help them, or hyperbarics will help. So they start doing hyperbarics. So now you're taking a child that has mercury and other metals that remember the mechanism of action of all pathologies, oxidative stress. So these metals are acting on the system by increasing oxidative stress. For the listeners that may not understand what I'm talking about when I say oxidative stress, everybody's heard about it, antioxidants, blah, 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 but people don't really have a, a visual understanding of what oxidative stress is. So a visual understanding of what oxidative stress is the rusting process. You take a banana, you cut it in half, in five minutes it starts turning brown, or an apple in half, it starts turning brown. That you are witnessing with your own eyes, oxidative stress. So we are experiencing oxidative stress on a daily basis. Everyone is. When we eat, when we exercise, we're experiencing oxidative stress. But certain things increase exponentially the rate of that oxidative injury. So oxidative stress or oxidation is something that's caused by oxygen. If you can remove oxygen, then you don't have that issue, but then you also remove, you know, the person's dead without oxygen within two, three minutes. So oxidation or oxidative injury, it's also called the reduction reaction in chemistry. Mm -hmm. This is what's happening all the time in our bodies, and when we have heavy metals or other types of things that cause oxidative injury, it increases that level of oxidation. And if our own body's innate antioxidant mechanisms are not sufficient to compensate, you then cause free radical pathology and, and acceleration of this oxidative injury that can be very detrimental. So now we know that oxygen is a necessary component in this formula. We know that when we're breathing oxygen, it's 21% ambient air has 21% oxygen in it. That's, that's what the children that are running around with autism have. That's what they're breathing in, that's what you're breathing in, that's what I'm breathing in. Everybody's breathing that in. Please understand, again, oxygen is the key here in oxidative stress. Now, somebody says hyperbaric oxygen works. So now they take these children with heavy metals and have already a 21% ambient oxygen that's contributing to their oxidative stress. With metals on board, they throw them inside a chamber, and now instead of 21% oxygen, you're giving them 100% oxygen. So you've now accelerated their oxidative stress by 
100%, 20 goes into 105 times, that's 500% increase in oxidative injury that you're having these children experience. So I won't treat a child with autism with hyperbarics until at least one year where the, uh, where the level of heavy metals can be shown to have been reduced. When you typically test these children, they don't show heavy metals. Why? Because they're non-excretors. That's one reason we understand that the modern medical system has ignored heavy metals. Because when you test children, oh, well, they don't have any metals. Well, it was the International Journal of Toxicology that Dr. Haley, Boyd Haley, um, directed me to that he published. And it basically showed that autistic children had four times lower level of mercury in their hair compared to neurotypic children. So neurotypic children had higher levels of mercury. And the more severe the autism, the lower the mercury levels. Now this isn't hair. Well, it makes sense if you think about it because hair is a dead tissue, it's excrement. So these children have an inability to excrete mercury. So it's being retained in their, in their bodies. It's not coming out in their hair. A neurotypic, normal, healthy, developing child has high levels of mercury in their hair because they're getting rid of it. So we all have mercury. It's those that can't get rid of it end up having this issue. And it's the same issue with Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's and autism is exactly the same thing, except that one is an acute level of toxicity during the developmental years, whereas the other one is a chronic exposure to mercury over a long term. So coming back to Rishiban and why I brought that story up, I'm treating this kid now for two years, no metals, nothing showing up, just a little blip here, a little blip there. He's gone from his extreme autism to not being able to be manageable, smiling appropriately, saying one or two words, but that's it. When I talked to his father, his father wanted to start the brain recovery protocol, which included hyperbarics. And I de delayed it because I said, we're still not seeing metals coming out. So it went one year, well, a year goes into two years and he still don't see any metals. And now I'm thinking to myself, you know what? In medicine, they say that always and never are never accurate. So there's always an exception to the rule. Maybe this child is an exception to the rule. Maybe this child doesn't have mercury. So they're flying from London and he walks into the exam room and I'm thinking, you know, I need to tell him, let's just do one more heavy metal challenge test. But before I can say anything, the father says, Dr. Patar was wondering, before we start doing the hyperbarics, can we do one more challenge test? I said, you know, it's funny, I was gonna tell you the same thing, so let's go ahead and do it. We do that test, and you know, not only is there a creator, Patrick, but he has an incredible sense of humor and irony. There's an old thing that I was taught by one of my medical school professors, if you think it, do it. So I had thought it, I went ahead and did it, did the test. His mercury level, which normal is supposed to be anything more than three micrograms per gram deciliter in urine, is considered toxic in, in mercury. Lead, anything greater than nine micrograms per gram deciliter is considered toxic. This child had never shown any mercury levels. It was DL, less than DL, which means less than detectable limits of mercury and lead. He had a couple other ones, just blips on the, on the charts. His mercury level comes back 37 micrograms per gram creatinine, or 35, something in the, something in the 30s. Lead comes back at over 100 micrograms per gram creatinine. I'm looking at this going, what in the name? This has to be a lab error. Father's shocked, I'm shocked. We repeat the test. The next test comes back, mercury at 87 micrograms per gram creatinine, and lead comes back at 245 micrograms per gram creatinine. The highest levels of lead and mercury I have ever had in any child in my clinic. That was after two 
and a half years of treating this child and abstaining from hyperbarics because I was concerned that the oxidative injury could cause a problem. But because I couldn't see the metals and see the levels coming down, I kept on waiting. And then when I was ready to say, okay, you know, I must be wrong here, the creator opened the door and showed me the answer again. So it's always mercury. And I can, uh, you know, why do I say always? Because if 4,000 times I open a door and somebody smacks me in the face, that I, I'm going to guess that the 4,000 first time I'm going to get smacked in the face. It may not be right yeah. now, but I'm going to get smacked. So I will not treat any child with hyperbarics or anything unless I've reduced their heavy metal load first. Because anything that can potentiate that oxidative stress, you don't want to do that. I spent a lot of time, last time I checked, which was a few years ago, I had over nine and a half million data points to substantiate my observations. We do urine fecal hair and red blood cell metal and mineral analysis on all our children that we treat for autism. And uh, I can tell you that the physiology of a child with autism and the physiology of a cancer patient are ironically similar. They're both mm -hmm. non-excreters. Quick question, what was it that uh, caused this test um, to suddenly start showing? I mean, did he suddenly start secreting after a period of time because of the treatment and that's why you were able to detect it then? That's exactly what it was because it's periodic, consistent treatment that basically opens up those pathways and it just took that long to open up those pathways. But in Abby's case, it took four tests. No mercury was showing up, none. Mm -hmm. But on his fourth test, I saw mercury showing up. In his initial test, antimony and arsenic showed up. Now here's a strange thing, and I'm getting to some clinical aspects here, which you would appreciate being a physician, but maybe the lay audience doesn't, won't appreciate this. But for some reason, I have no idea why, but for some reason, before the mercury comes up, there's a combination of four other metals will start showing elevation. You'll start to see them going up. That's antimony, arsenic, tin, and nickel, those four. Mm -hmm. It's usually two of them, sometimes it could be three, rarely have I seen all four, and rarely have I seen just one. It's usually a combination of two, sometimes three, that you'll start seeing those levels start to, strangely enough, go up. And when those levels go up, you can now be certain that you're gonna see, as, as they come down, you'll see mercury increase. I have no idea how to explain it, except that it's an observation after doing thousands and thousands of tests. You know, in these 4,000 kids, it's not just one test. I do it every two months we do these tests. Some of these kids I've got five years worth of tests on. Right. So it's very interesting to see those four metals going up, and then as they come down, then mercury levels will go up. But it's getting those pathways back online. Well, Dr. Bittar, I feel like I could talk to you literally for days around this, <laughs> but uh, I, I think we really covered the ground here. I so appreciate you taking the time out of your day. Uh, you know, you always answer the call and, and you know, you talked earlier about your purpose and you know, what drives you um, and, and why you do what you do. And obviously this is, uh, even though it, it, you're, you're humble around it, this is heroic work that you're doing every day in your practice. But I'll also say that, um, you know, you're always answering the call. I mean, you will always find an opportunity to share this message, to get the truth out to people, and, uh, and you do it in an unrestrained way. So I just want to say uh, personally, uh, thank you very much for, uh, for taking the time. And I know that our conversation today is going to help countless people around the world. So thanks for doing this. Thank you, Patrick. I appreciate you asking me to participate. That concludes part two of my interview with Dr. Batar. I hope you got as much out of it as I did. 
phenomenal information, things that you need to learn can alter the course of your life and those that you care about. I truly appreciate the fact that you tune in and spend your time with me as we go through all this content and information. It's something very meaningful and very important. So thank you.